Good morning, family. Welcome home. We're glad everyone's with us. <clears throat> Thank you, uh, the choir. It's always great. You know the songs are doing pretty well when I have to go get a bottle of water because um, <clears throat> I don't know if I'm going to make it. <clears throat> We're, we are continuing our journey through the Gospel of John. And today we're going to be uh, in John chapter 12, uh, verses 37 through 50. <clears throat> so you have your Bibles, you can open up there. If you don't, don't worry, it's going to be on the screen as we follow along. And so let's read this to start. <clears throat> Starting in chapter 12, verse 37, it says this, Though he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to the world to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken it on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, we, uh, as we read this scripture and as we're about to dive into it, we just pray that you bring it to life in our, in our minds, in our hearts, that we can understand what you would have us uh, grasp from this uh, text. That as we engage it, that you bring uh, the gospel home to us so that we can see the gloriousness of Christ and understand how he has saved us and who he is. Lord, I pray that you can be moving today as we come to your word and that we can understand it and follow it as you have called us. For all these things in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> the Curious Case of Benjamin Franklin. You guys all know Benjamin Franklin, right? One of the founding fathers. Uh, he invented bifocals. He flew that kite in the storm with the key. Uh, he's on the $100 bill. He uh, was a diplomat, but he also was a publisher. He was a printer, and he printed many things, but among those things that he printed were the sermons and journals of one George Whitfield, which might be the greatest evangelist that America ever saw during his time, if not ever. And Franklin was not a Christian. The best you could say of Franklin was that he believed there was a God, but he did not believe that Jesus was that God. But yet he had this friendship with George Whitfield, who sadly say we probably don't know that name as well as Benjamin Franklin, do we? George Whitfield, as I said, was 
a great preacher. He was an evangelist. This was a, at a time when there was not mics. In the mid-1700s, God used Whitfield as the primary agent for the Great Awakening, where thousands came to know Christ anew and, and for, and, uh, in reality, and that uh, Whitfield were preached to thousands upon uh, thousands of people, sometimes as much as 30,000 people, and people, and he saw a massive response and it was estimated about 80% of the uh, colonies, the colonists of America, had heard Whitfield preach in person. And so he be, kind of became popular, and he became popular in part because he had this friendship with <clears throat> Benjamin Franklin, who started to print his sermons that they had a wider reach. And this friendship with Benjamin Franklin, publishing his journals, uh, morphed into a friendship where he would host Whitfield in his home. Franklin would <clears throat> listen to him preach. He actually would go out of his way to try to find places for Whitfield to preach. He listened to Whitfield pray for his own conversion, and yet Franklin was unmoved. He never professed faith in Jesus Christ. And that almost defies explanation. How could someone who had this relationship with the greatest evangelist, where he heard the gospel preached to him personally and to great crowds, where he read hundreds upon hundreds of sermons that expounded upon the gospel and prayed them and published them to people, how could this person who had late night conversations with evangelism, evangelists who, who urged him to believe in Christ, who prayed for him, who wrote letters for him, who carried this on for more than 30 years, how could someone remain unmoved? How could Franklin not come to know Christ? But this is not unusual to, for us. For how could we think of anyone not coming to know Christ? Why does someone not believe in Jesus or reject the gospel? As Christians, as people who believe, if you are so one, we desire and we're commissioned, we believe by God to spread the gospel, to, to uh, preach his truth. We have experienced the truth of God's grace in our life, and we know the joy it brings. But we also know the truth that humans, our neighbors, our brothers and sisters, our co-workers, if they do not know Christ, they remain in unrepentant sin, and because of that, their destiny is not one with God, but apart from God for all eternity. And so that, that truth and that joy we experience motivates us and pushes us forward to share who Christ is because we know it's a matter of life and death. But as we're motivated to share, our methods need to be grounded in right theology and a true understanding of belief and unbelief. Because if we haven't thought through why does someone not believe or why does someone not respond, Usually you put that on ourselves. We start saying stuff like, man, if only I was more convincing. If only I had taken that other opportunity to share the truth. If only I had done more, then they would believe. And we put a weight on ourselves that can actually even crush us. Because our theology determines our methods. But this should not be uh, news for us because we've all probably experienced that angst of we share our faith with someone and they don't respond. 
And we can question why they respond. Or maybe even more miraculous, we share our faith with someone, the faith with someone, and they do respond. And we are left kind of, why do people respond or don't respond? I had a friend in college, Rob. He's a very good friend. Uh, he was actually the first wedding I performed was for him and his wife. And he, he, he went away from the faith, and he was a, a, um, very militant in his unbelief. And so it's a little, it's a little different, but I, I remained his friend, and I, I, I tried to uh, urge him to um, come back to Christ. But I, I have to admit, I did a pretty lousy job at that, and I was saddled myself with guilt of, man, I could have done more. And, man, I was a pretty bad witness at this point, and, man, I should have taken that opportunity and it has weighed, it weighed on me for so long. And then actually just a few years ago, visiting him, he lives in Colorado, and in conversation, he casually drops how his pastor said. And I, I stopped the conversation. I said, excuse me, what? Your, your pastor? And he blows it off like, oh, yeah, we've been going to church for a couple of years now. I'm like, what? It defied explanation. Why would this guy who was so... Militant in his unbelief, I mean militant to the capital M, he had a, a fish tattoo, an ichthus tattoo that he had changed to a double helix after he kind of renounced faith. Now this guy is taking his family to church to hear the gospel. And if I did not have a correct theology of belief or unbelief given to me by the Bible, I would defy explanation. I would have been at a loss of how that works. But we're in luck, for the Bible gives us a theology, a belief system of why some people respond and why some people don't. And we see that theology of belief on belief in John chapter 12, verses 37 through 50. It helps us understand that big question that we struggle with, why some people believe and some don't. And actually the whole book of John, you could say, was written for that purpose because John makes it very clear. He wrote the gospel so that people can believe in Jesus Christ. He wrote the gospel so people can interact with it and see Jesus for who he is and respond to him. And that includes us today and our neighbors and our friends. And when we think about why some people believe or how a person responds, we need to think about that because this is the most important decision they can make in their lives, as we talked about. And if we summed up the message of John 12, 37 through 50, I would put it like this. Believe in Jesus to live. Denial of Jesus is to die. Because there's really only two choices every human has in front of them. You either believe in Jesus, you believe he is who he said he is, that he is the son of God, God in the flesh, come down to live the perfect life that we could not live, to die in our place, taking our sins upon him upon the cross. And we believe that and we are saved and so we have eternity with the Father so that we have a life right now filled with blessing that we can know him and we have meaning in everything we do or you deny it and you die. You deny you die or you believe and you can, you can live. Believe in Jesus to live. Denial of Jesus is to die. And we see this in chapter 12 of John. So if you look at John chapter 12 in the first section, you, I would call this a really robust understanding of a theology of unbelief. That John is trying to help his readers understand why some people do not believe in Jesus. 
Why do some people who saw Jesus do his miraculous signs, who saw Jesus do his wonders, who heard Jesus himself teach the truth, why do some people not respond? And he leaves us with these two clear principles in this section. And number one is humanity is responsible, culpable for deciding to follow Jesus or not. It is a person's choice, responsibility to say yes to Jesus and follow him. But this other principle he leaves us with is that God is in control of everything, including salvation. We hear those principles and we go, whoa, 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 whoa. Those seem to contradict. Those seem to be intention at the very least. They seem to not work well together. But John states these two principles hand in hand, side by side, and says, that's just how it is, folks. This is the truth of the Bible. And when we read the Bible, we see this again and again, that these things, why we can struggle with to understand how they work together, and there's great mystery there that theologians spend their lives trying to unpack. But it's true because the Bible preaches and teaches both of these things. Humans are responsible to choose Christ, and God is God, and he is in control. When we hold these things together and believe they work together, we hold to a system of belief or a philosophical system, system called compatibilism, which is a fantasy way to say God in control, humans doing their thing, those are compatible, see how it makes sense? Compatible with each other, and they work together. We don't know all the ins and outs. We don't know all the answers, but they work together. D.A. Carson, who is a theologian and writer, he says this, philosophically, like every major author in the canon, John is a compatibilist. He believes that God is in control, but he'll preach to his last dying breath for people to make the decision to follow Christ. Because these things are held together. And when we turn to the beginning, we see that humans are responsible. This is why he asks that question. He's seeking to understand why people don't believe. And he says uh, in, at the beginning of the section, though he had done, talking about Jesus, so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled Lord, who has believed what he had heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? John says these people did not believe. It defies explanation that Jesus taught them, that he lived amongst them, that he performed miracles like they had never seen before, and yet they remained stubbornly unbelieving in him as he described himself to be. And why is that? And he says, well, he pointed to Isaiah uh, as an example that they still did not believe him and that there's a reason for that. And that's because it fulfills uh, what Isaiah prophesies. He points to Isaiah 53, 1, to drive home his point, a quotation that says to who has, uh, who, um, what he heard from us, that really reinforcing people had heard the teachings of Jesus, the very teachings of God, and yet they still did not believe that they had they seen the arm of the Lord revealed, referring to Jesus figuratively being the arm of God in the world as he did miraculous signs, and yet they did not believe that these people were responsible for not making the decision to follow Christ, and that more evidence alone doesn't change them. More profound teaching alone doesn't move their hearts. 
Unbelief at its core is a, the response of a rebellious heart against God. And that if we were going to take a rebel and just saturate them with more evidence or more preaching, they would not change. They would stay where they are, and that's the same true today, that they chose not to believe what they saw or hear because they're in rebellion. It takes something beyond our efforts, something beyond our, the evidence we can give to crack into a human heart and make them believe in Christ. Because when maybe you've experienced this when you're sharing the faith, people can give objection after objection after objection to everything you say. And if they run out of logical and rational objections, well, they can just say, well, I, just, I don't feel like that's true for me, or that doesn't really work with my lifestyle, or whatever they want to say. Something needs to be, go beyond our efforts and because we are not witty enough, we're not smart enough, we don't have enough persuasion in our being to make someone believe who Jesus is. That takes something beyond us for them to respond. Something deeper is going on. But they're still responsible. And they can have great reasons, or what they think might be great reasons, not to believe. And John looks upon these people who did not believe, and he, he even points out one of the reasons that they didn't believe. In verses 43 and 40, uh, 42 and 43, he says, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. Talking about Jesus. That many of the people in authority actually said, Hey, he might be who he says he is. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. And so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That these people thought they had a good reason not to believe. That people would be mean to us and put us out of the synagogue. They would put us out of relationship probably with the whole society if we confessed faith in Christ. But these people chose the glory that comes from man over the glory that comes from God. And that's one of the greatest challenges every Christian has to face. Who do we seek to serve? Who do we seek to please? Are we seeking to please man or are we seeking to please God? Now here in America, the glory that comes from man is, is more just acceptance and maybe people don't look at you weird. It's very kind of timid and tame. I, I, you know, it might change in the future, but I, was, I still say that, that the pressure we feel is more of an attitude pressure. But across the globe, that's not how the case. That the pressure they feel from following the glory of man rather than the glory of God is that they might be beaten if they say they follow God. That they might lose their job. They might lose their family. They might even lose their life. Here in America, when we think about church and the importance of church and coming together, which obviously you guys all value, coming together, some people, not you, might say, man, it's really an inconvenience. I got to wake up early on a Sunday morning. And go spend, give up an hour and a half of my time. I have to, I, and people might look at me like, weird, do I do that? But right now in China, people gather together knowing that the reality of an official breaking down the doors and arresting their pastor and the leaders of the church is a pretty sure thing. That persecution is increasing, and yet they choose, they value the glory of man over the glory of I mean, the glory of God over the glory of man. When we think about sharing our faith here in the United States, 
what are we afraid of? I might get a little awkward. I might not have the words. They might look at me funny. Maybe my friendship's a little strange, uh, strained if I do that. Well, I just read about a, a, a home, small church, a, a house church in a Muslim country where the pastor encouraged all the members to think of five people who needed to hear the gospel. And then the pastor says, now of those five people, which one is the most likely to kill you when you share? Pick that one, pray for them, and then go share the gospel. Why? Because these are people who know the glory of God, and they seek that rather than the glory of man. And so this is a reality that John does not paint these people in a favorable light because they just use the excuse that maybe some people might not like us or they might include us with the Jesus people, and so we won't profess them. So John is making it very clear that there's reasons that people do it. Some we don't understand, but the people choose not to follow Jesus, to reject Jesus, and that they make that choice. But then he goes in to citing Isaiah to say there's something bigger going on as well. Something that helps uh, uh, solidify this in our minds, and that is God is in control. Once again, he points to Isaiah, and he quotes from Isaiah 6, verse 10, showing that God is in control of how people respond. If you look at the original context of that passage in Isaiah, this is Isaiah just receiving a commission from God. He, he sees this vision, and he's, he's kind of caught up into heaven, and he sees the glory of God, and it fills the temple. It's a majestic scene. And God basically says, who is going to go for us? Who is going to preach the news? And Isaiah says, here I am. Send me. And then God says to him, great, you're going to go out to a people, and you're going to preach the news, and they will not respond. They will not hear you. They will not come to believe in me and repent of their sin so that my purposes can be fulfilled. And so John is taking that and says, even today there's purposes behind people not believing and that people will not respond because God is in control of that. And why it defies us, our explanation is sometimes we believe in it and we trust in it and we trust in God. But we ask the question, we don't understand this. Why would God ever, ever make a world in which people don't believe in him? We don't know. But he did. And it's for his glory, and we know that to be true. But even in that, we know there's some things that we can deceive from this passage that show us why God did this. Number one is that unbelief had to happen because unbelief sends Jesus to the cross. Without unbelief, Jesus would not die. Without Jesus dying, there would be no salvation. And so we see there's a purpose in people not believing is that it sends Jesus to the cross to die for us. This is why he points to Isaiah 53 in verse 1 in that, in that quotation and says people rejected Jesus. Because they reject him, he's going to go to the cross. Because people rejected him, he's going to save us. And it's, in that passage, Isaiah 53 is right before um, is maybe the most clearest example of how Jesus saves us in the Old Testament. I just want to read this for you, uh, um, Isaiah 53, starting in, let's say, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And as one with whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That John, taking this quotation right before that section in Isaiah 53, is proving the point that Jesus must be rejected to save us. People don't believe in Jesus. And this was planned by God, even though we don't want to say that. That Jesus, so that Jesus would be rejected by them, so he could suffer on our behalf, and so that Jesus could have all our sin laid on him, and so that the wandering sheep, that's you and me and all believers, can be brought back to the fold, can be brought home. And so we see that there's purpose in people rejecting Jesus. We also see that belief is only possible with God working directly on a human's heart. That's what that next quotation in Isaiah 610 shows us, that God hardens people to not respond, and when he acts on their hearts, they do respond. And that when we see that, we want to see it in a negative light. That we see that and go, wow, that doesn't seem fair. But this is not God who has someone clamoring to come to know him, and he says, no, you can't, because there's no human like that until he moves them to know him and to love them. This is rather God not working in someone's heart, but working in someone else's heart. And still we say, that seems unfair. That seems just not good. And we would object to it. And we see it in a negative light. But rather we should see it as a, praise, a reason for praise and confidence. Praise because we go, thank you, God, that when I was a rebel, when I was in sin, when I wanted nothing to do with you, for I am my own master, my own commander, the fate of my life is in my hands, and I'm living on my own ways, destined for hell. Thank you, God, that you broke into my heart and brought me to see who Christ is so I could respond to him and follow him for the rest of my life. Thank you. And so it's a reason for praise. But it's also a reason for confidence. For as I said, if it was on us when we went out and we had to win people to know Christ, there would be no churches filled with believers because we are not winsome enough and smart enough or convincing enough. So we go out now boldly, confidently, when we preach the word of God, God is at work changing hearts, opening up minds so that they respond to him and come to believe him. And it gives us confidence that we can boldly preach the truth. And if you're like, man, I still don't know if I believe this, I'm willing to bet all of us pray in this fashion. For when you pray, and you should pray for people to come to know Christ, and I hope you all pray for people that you know to come to Christ, when you pray for someone to come to know Christ, how do you pray for them? Do you pray for, man, God, I, just, I hope that I'm convincing enough? No, that's not how I pray. 
I pray, God, open up their hearts, open up their minds, change them so they can know who you are. Because in prayer, we all believe God is sovereign over so who comes to know him. In prayer, we believe that. Why? Because why else would we pray? Why else would we believe that would do anything unless we believe the truth that God is in control of who comes to know him? And so we take every person that we know and we love, and even those we don't love, to the throne of God and say, God, change them. Open their hearts. Let them know who you are. Because God is in control. He made it all. He controls it all. He does what he pleases. He is sovereign. I love how John brings it back to what is most important, Jesus. After diving deep into some pretty philosophical waters going through in Isaiah, John goes, yes, but when Isaiah saw this glory, he saw him, and he saw his glory. And we're like, John, who are you talking about? John is saying when Isaiah saw this vision in Isaiah chapter 6 of the glory of God in his throne room, he saw Jesus. That Jesus is the glory of God. That Jesus is God. And so Isaiah, so John, using Isaiah, is pulling us back to what is most important, who Jesus is and why that changes everything. Because believing in Jesus means we live. Denial of Jesus is to die. Which is a great segue to that last section in in chapter 12 of John. That this, you might say, is the last public teaching of Jesus in the Gospel of John. For right now, he is about to turn, and from chapter 13 through chapter 17, he's only going to be with his disciples, and he's going to be pouring into them. And after that is his arrest, and his crucifixion, and his resurrection. And so right now, before his crucifixion, this is the last public teaching that he has with people. And so he cries out with a loud voice the truth of who he is, is his last hooray, his last public teaching, his last chance for people to see him who he is. And so what does he do? He makes it very clear. To believe in Jesus is to believe in God the Father. To see Jesus is to see God the Father. To hear Jesus is to hear God the Father. Because Jesus is God, sent by God, speaking God's word as the eternal word. He's making one last bold and defying our whole mind's explanation of who he is. He is God and the flesh and people need to follow him. This is a testimony that founds the Christian church that we believe Jesus is God. It's a testimony that's carried throughout the Bible when you look at like uh, Hebrews Chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is Jesus as God. This is how we know him. This is the truth of who he is. Paul says the same thing in Colossians chapter 1, verses, uh, 
15 and on, he says, he is the image. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that everything he might be preeminent. preeminent. Uh, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile unto himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood, his blood on the cross. This is Jesus, the testimony of the Christian church as God, that we know him as our Lord, that we know him as our maker, that we know him as our Savior. And John goes further that Jesus is the light. He's the light of God who's come in the world and he's driving out the darkness. He is the light that shines into our dark life and pulls us from the dominion of sin and death and brings us to his kingdom of light and salvation. That he is God and that we know this to be true. And that unbelief in Jesus is why people will be judged on the last day. He says he doesn't come judged, but his word judges people when he comes again on the last day. His word, his teaching of who he is. In one sense, the only sin that truly matters, that people will be judged when he comes again, is the sin of unbelief in Christ. For all other sins, if someone runs to Christ, are forgiven and taken care of. But if you remain in unrepentant sin, that seals your destiny. That seals where you are forever. Believe in Jesus to live. Denial of Jesus is to die. When we see this and we realize the pattern through the Gospel of John that this is Jesus' last public teaching, but yet John just said people don't believe. Well, like, why, why would he preach this again if people are not believing? Why would he say this again if it already told us there's a reason why they don't believe? I think there's several reasons, but one at the very most is that Jesus fully knows well that when who he is is preached, when the gospel of Christ is preached, we, us, he knows, but we will, don't know how people will respond. And so he powerfully proclaims who he is because he knows people could respond to the truth and they will respond to truth. That maybe that is why this passage says Jesus cried out this truth. It's a weird turn of phrase. Instead of just calmly teaching them the truth of who he is, it says Jesus cried out, I'm God. Come to know me and you will live. And he's once again pressing upon them the truth that he is the only way to salvation that they might respond. But another reason is that John, the gospel writer, is recording this. And it's not just for the people who saw Jesus. It's actually for the people that John was writing to who might not have seen Jesus, including us. That John is penning this gospel, and one last time he wants his readers to see Jesus. One last time he's saying, if you're reading this gospel, look again to who Christ is. Look to him as God. Look to him as the promised one. Look to him as your redeemer. Look to him as your savior and know him to be who he has revealed himself to be. So once again, John, the gospel writer, is urging us, 
believe in Jesus to live because denial of Jesus is to die. When I was thinking about how to bring this message to a close, because we see the theology of belief and unbelief, and that can be a heavy thing, and we see the reality of who Jesus is and the truth and that, that we follow, there's only one question we have to ask, and that's the question that they make it explicit up in verse 42 and 43 is, what concerns us? Does the glory of God concern us, and do we follow him all of our days? Or does the glory of man, the praise of man, concern us? It's interesting how John talks about these people who profess, not publicly, but privately to believe in Jesus. He doesn't paint them in a good light. I'm willing to bet we're like, well, we can't judge them. Who are we to say whether they truly believed or not? But yet John seems to be making this point pretty clear that he does not consider these people in with, who people, with people who believe in Jesus because they would not take that step to publicly say, I'm with Jesus. That they were scared, and so they hid because of the praise and glory of man rather than to work for the glory of God. Because in John's mind and in the Bible's mind, there are no categories for a secret Christian. Someone who just privately says, I follow Christ, but yet continues to live like nothing has changed, continues to follow the ways of the world, continues to follow their own desires and their pursuits, that that is not, doesn't make sense in the Bible's lens. Because when the Bible says someone comes to know Christ, it commands and urges that that internal reality of repentance, that eternal reality of coming to know Christ must be expressed externally as someone joins a church, partakes in the Lord's Supper, lives as they're called to live, and follows Christ as they're called to follow Christ. Which when you think about today, that means there's no biblical category of Sunday Christians. People who only come on Sunday, take in, and then go live how they want to live. Walk, you know, work how they want to work. Enjoy life how they want to enjoy work. Why? Because to believe in Jesus, to trust in Jesus, means that we give our whole life to Jesus, and we follow Jesus, and when we follow Jesus, his commands saturate our hearts, and we want to love him through the physical and reality of our external expression of following him. This also means that the Bible doesn't really have a place for Christian atheists, which are people who claim to know Christ, but yet live like an atheist, live like Christ doesn't exist, live like the world just tells them how to live and they follow that. And again, because why we mess up and we stumble and we're not always perfect examples, someone who knows Christ is always striving to live out the reality of the new life we've been given. That we follow Christ because we know the power of Christ living in us as grace and mercy spur us on. So why do we have those conceptions? Maybe we don't have those conceptions, but why does society have them? Or why do we even allow that to exist? I think that's because this praise of man, that we, we allow people to follow the praise of man or the glory of man that comes from man rather than the glory that comes from God. And that we each have to ask ourselves as we walk out into this world that do we find ourselves conforming to the world or do we stay true to what Christ has told us to live? We have to ask ourselves are we more concerned with what our coworkers think? 
than what Christ has commanded us to live? Are we more concerned with how our neighbors view us than what Christ has commanded us to do? Are we more concerned with our family, our friends, our even strangers on the street, how they see us than the glory of God? Because instead of trying to please man, I think we can read this, we're urged to be concerned with the praise of God for that is the way of salvation. Knowing him, following him, knowing the truth, and we're saved to live for him the rest of our days. Because John wrote this gospel for us to believe that we could see Jesus, that we could know Jesus, that we could see that he and only he has the power to save us that we need to trust in him, that we need to follow him, that we need to be praying for other people to come to know him, that we need to tell people the reality that Jesus saves and that when we share boldly and we're confronted with unbelief and it seems insurmountable that we could not crack a hard shell on someone, that we don't shrink away because, yes, we can't convince someone, but guess what? God can. And so that the most rigid unbelief shatters like glass when God swings his mighty hammer of grace. And so that when we boldly proclaim the truth of the gospel and we're confronted with unbelief, we know that God is in control of it. And so unbelief bows to him. And so that we know that we can share and that when we share, notice I say when, it's not if, when we share the truth of who Christ is, we can have confidence that God is at work. We have confidence that God is changing minds. We have confidence that God is changing hearts. Someone's unbelief can seem impossible to change, but God is bigger, stronger, and mightier than the most stubborn unbelief there is. So we preach the truth because we know the truth that to believe in Jesus is to live. Denial of Jesus is to die. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise your holy name. Lord, we pray that as we, as we leave here and we have, we've looked at John 12 and we've seen the truth and the theology of unbelief or who you are, who your son is, and who you reveal yourself to be for your son, and that we can come to a place of praise. That we can come to a place, a place of adoration in you and, 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 and awe of how you saved us, that we can come to a place of confidence that we're called to share all the more because we know that you're at work. So Lord, I pray for all of us here as we take away the teachings of John, of who Jesus is, that we can be moved, we can change, we can grow, we can be spurred on to share that truth. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand and let's worship and praise.